The reading of the scriptures from Isaiah chapter 63 and verses 15 to 19. Uh, so I invite your reverent attention to uh, the public reading of God's word, and may we hear the word in faith and with joy uh, that we indeed have uh, this living word uh, for us. Isaiah 63, beginning in verse 15. Look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. For you are our Father, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer from of old is your name. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our heart so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. Uh, fundamental to uh, the Christian faith is uh, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The beginning of wisdom uh, provoked by fearing the Lord. And uh, the prophet Isaiah this morning gives us a perspective as Christians as to why uh, we are to fear the Lord uh, and begin the journey of, uh, of wisdom. Uh, essentially, uh, the text uh, this morning is a prayer on behalf of uh, the prophet Isaiah. Uh, I'm going to look at two prayers uh, this morning. Uh, both are requests for divine intervention. Uh, one is uh, answered totally and completely. Uh, the other is only answered partially and temporally. Uh, that, of course, is the prayer of the prophet Isaiah, but we will look at another prayer uh, that uh, is answered totally and finally and absolutely. Uh, the reason I say that Isaiah's prayer is answered only partially and temporally uh, is, of course, uh, the children of Israel are in captivity, will return to the land, they will rebuild the temple, uh, but then again they fail their probation all over again uh, and return to ruin. Uh, it's a magnificent prayer, but uh, sad as it is, uh, people lurch back to their old ways, as is the way of man. Uh, in the one prayer, we will learn to fear the Lord due to His power, His power to ruin people spiritually. Uh, we don't think in those terms, but it's uh, embodied in our prayer this morning. Uh, that The prayer of the prophet Isaiah. The power of God to ruin. It's a terrifying thought, uh, but again... It instructs the church to fear the Lord. And in the other prayer, uh, we fear the Lord in awe because of His ability and power to save. Two prayers. Uh, two, two men. Uh, one, the God-man, but of course the prophet Isaiah uh, presents another prayer. Uh, but let's begin with uh, this concept of uh, the terrible notion, the power of God to ruin to ruin people spiritually. 
Uh, difficult concept, but again, I think we'll see it in the text. Uh, Isaiah's prayer is a uh, prayer of, of lament and sadness, uh, documenting the people's spiritual uh, condition and their need for God to intervene and God to grant relief. Uh, in, in that sense, it's a, it's a majestic prayer because uh, the people are in terrible spiritual ruin and he asks for God to intervene. And you and I know because of the sovereignty of God, if God doesn't intervene, nothing will happen but ruin. Uh, we are a people that are desperate for God to intervene in our lives. Uh, and uh, we need to learn all the more that if he does not intervene, we will simply lurch into greater and greater and more intense spiritual ruin. Uh, the address of the prayer is in verses 15 to 16. Uh, the prophet Isaiah confronts the majesty of God, uh, but his complaint uh, is uh, uh, captured for us in verse 17 uh, to the end of the chapter, uh, verse 19. Uh, let's look at uh, the address. Uh, the prophet is addressing, of course, uh, the Lord God Almighty. Uh, look down, verse 15, from heaven and see from thy holy and thy glorious habitation, uh, where are thy zeal and thy mighty deeds? So appeal, of course, for God to act because the people are in spiritual trouble. Uh, something of the theology of the book of Exodus, uh, God, God says to Moses, I've uh, seen the plight of my people and I've come down to deliver them. Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. It's something of the reality that if you are a Christian, uh, God saw your desperate plight and he came down to intervene to deliver you. That's what he's, he did in the book of uh, Exodus. Uh, and uh, Isaiah is essentially saying, come down from heaven. Uh, you know our plight and deliver us. Uh, it's, words are captured in another uh, just as profound and beautiful sense in, in uh, the 80th Psalm. Uh, Psalm 80 and verse 7, O God of hosts, restore us. It's a prayer for restoration. Cause thy face, uh, the psalmist says, to shine upon us. Uh, the great ironic blessing. Perhaps it's departed. Uh, their faces are bland and blank and empty. Uh, o God, come and restore us and make thy face shine upon us as in days gone by. Uh, it's picked up again. Psalm 80 and verse 14, O God of hosts, turn again now. Look down from heaven and see and take care of this vine. The vine, of course, has become wild. It's uh, growing, of course, in wild ways. And the psalmist is praying that God would return, that God would fix and God would deliver uh, because of the incredible nature of the vine that has turned wild. It's also an appeal, of course, to God's sovereign majesty, uh, notice the words of the prophet Isaiah in his prayer. Uh, Look down from heaven and see from thy holy and glorious habitation. Something of this beginning language and the commission of uh, the prophet uh, in Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, Isaiah uh, again is about to be commissioned, uh, but before he is, uh, he sees the Lord seated upon his throne, high and lifted up. And Isaiah says, in the train of his glory, filled the temple. That Isaiah is awestruck by the majesty of the fullness 
uh, and the incomparability and the immutability of the train of the glory of the great God of heaven. Certainly, it's a reminder for the church that when you lose sight of that, you will begin to wander. Uh, in and of itself, it's an implicit appeal uh, to understand uh, that our God is sovereign and totally and completely majestic. Uh, it's, it's a view of, of the master and maker of the universe and his uh, universal reign, that he is the sole, complete, total, absolute king and all are his subordinates. Uh, you know, certainly wonderful application from our own country. Uh, we sometimes get seduced by our sense of government, that we vote our rulers in, and if we don't like them, we'll throw them out. Well, that's not true of God. He can never be thrown out. And he depends upon none of us for his position of glory. Uh, the basis of uh, the prayer is not just uh, his uh, position, uh, but his power. Uh, the sense of the prayer of the prophet Isaiah is that uh, God alone has the power to answer this prayer. Again, a marvelous reminder that God is not just uh, a titular head, uh, that he has all power and authority, and wisdom and glory. Uh, he's not like the Queen of England. Uh, she has a position, but she really doesn't have much power. It's a constitutional monarchy. Uh, she doesn't wield much power, uh, even though she has a great lofty position. Uh, our God has not just a great lofty position. He possesses all power and all authority over everyone and everything and every event and every aspect of time. Uh, Notice, notice uh, the request and the interrogative uh, in the latter part of verse 10. Where, where are thy zeal and thy mighty deeds, the stirrings of thy heart and thy compassion are restrained towards me? Uh, the prophet is saying, God, you've left. You've taken the receiver off the hook. Where are you? Come, return again. Uh, show your power and your zeal. Uh, this word for zeal, it's interestingly enough, is found in two messianic texts in the prophecy of Isaiah. The first uh, Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 7. Great messianic text. Uh, the prophet says of, of the dominion and the rule of the glory of God will have no end and the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish it. That, that the Lord's reign will eventually turn total and universal. It will extend from sea to sea, uh, encompass everything. And what will accomplish that? The zeal of the Lord of hosts. Uh, Isaiah is praying, God, God come. God, come now. We're in a desperate condition, and only the zeal of the Lord uh, can fix our condition. Another place, a great uh, messianic reference, Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 13, of the great messianic warrior who will come and prosecute war and uh, uh, defeat all of his enemies, and uh, the Lord will come with with uh, warfare that's uh, prosecuted in zeal. And Isaiah knows that. And he prays for God to come in zeal again. Uh, because seemingly God has left. Uh, hasn't returned for a long time. Uh, it, it is, I think, in terms of application, an ultimate uh, reminder and answer for all of us. 
that in regard to everything about our lives, God is the answer, the ultimate answer. That uh, uh, the prosecution of the gospel in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 7 is the ultimate answer for everything. Uh, reminded to us to stay close to Christ, the great Messiah, and to trust and to hope in him. And regardless of the swirling events of our lives, uh, that he will keep and preserve his people. Uh, he, he, Isaiah perhaps wants God to act again as he did at the Exodus. But as I've suggested, the prayer is an acknowledgement that God has restrained himself and is not acting. Uh, it is a, uh, uh, it's a terrifying thought, really, if you think about it. Uh, because if God does not act in salvation, nothing will happen. Uh, and so uh, uh, the prophet is acknowledging the desperation of the people uh, for the presence of the power of God. Uh, for us, it's a reminder that God is the headwater and fountain of mercy and compassion but certainly in the case of the people in the days of Isaiah, God is not giving. And if God does not give, uh, men and women are in a terrible way. Uh, it's reminded to us of, again, the sovereignty of God. Ex pardon me, Romans chapter 9, verse, verse 15. Uh, God has compassion upon those whom he has compassion. And those whom he hardens, he hardens. It's a terrifying prospect. Because it means it all depends upon God to have mercy. And again, it's a terrifying prospect that God hardens those whom he wills. Uh, that the willing of God is the essence of uh, revival and salvation or the essence of total spiritual ruin. Now, we don't think in those terms, but certainly the uh, Apostle Paul did. But nevertheless, Isaiah appeals to God, his father, redeemer, and of course his relationship to the great patriarchs. It's almost like come again, God, as you did in days gone by. Uh, reminder again of something of, of uh, the prayer for the lost. The people are lost. Uh, God, save me if you will, because I cannot save myself. Uh, beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord that power of, uh, of God to act if he wills or to not act if he wills. Uh, when, we, uh, when we begin the content of the prayer in verses 17 to 19, again, it's a bitter complaint expressing the fear of God. Uh, and the, the interrogatives uh, drip, drip with sadness. Uh, notice, notice verse 17. Why, O Lord, dost thou cause us to stray from thy ways and harden our hearts from fearing thee? I began earlier in my introduction saying that one of the reasons we ought to fear the Lord is because he has the power and authority and complete, absolute justice to affect spiritual ruin. And I suspect some of you say, well, how can that be? It's not, it's not the God that I understand for the Bible. Well, again, look at the request of the prophet Isaiah. Why, O Lord, have you caused us to stray from your ways? And why have you hardened our hearts from fearing, fearing you? Uh, so uh, 
bit of uh, Hebrew technicality here. The prophet uses a verbal stem uh, that's a causative uh, verbal stem. Why have you caused us to wander, to stray from your ways? Uh, again, he, he lays the request of the Lord. We sometimes recoil at this, but again, God is sovereign. Uh, the theology goes back, I think, ultimately to the commission of the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 10. Verse 10. Uh, God commissions the prophet to do what? Uh, harden the hearts of the people, uh, make their eyes dim and their ears heavy. Terrible prospect that the commission of the prophet Isaiah could go affect spiritual ruin. Uh, by the way, the same verbal stem, technically it's the hyphial stem in the Hebrew verbal system, the causative stem. Isaiah, go cause the people's hearts to be fat. Go cause their eyes to grow dim and their ears to be heavy. Uh, now, of course, it's retributive justice for their idolatry. God is a just God. There is no question. And the retribution here is simply the irony you want to be like idols? Go make them like their idols who can't see, who can't hear, and who can't speak, who have no hearts whatsoever. Uh, and so the prophet is commissioned as a spiritual agent to go turn the people like uh, the idols that they long and lust for. Uh, but again, ultimately, uh, behind everything, even the prophet is the majesty and the glory of God and his retributive justice. Why should we fear? Because God affects justice and nothing can stop him. I've always been amazed at that great text, the uh, end of uh, Revelation chapter 6, when uh, the kings and the, the powerful men uh, confront the coming of God and they run and they say, hide us, mountains fall upon us and hide us from him who sits upon the throne and the wrath of the Lamb. That's why you fear God. Because he sits upon the throne. Uh, because he executes retributive justice. Uh, in this case, the case of the prophet Isaiah, spiritually, he's affected spiritual ruin. But, of course, one day he will come and he will affect total ruin and devastation for those who are enemies of of uh, him who sits upon the throne in the face of the Lamb. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Uh, I think in certain measure we, we're forgetting in that church because we don't proclaim the sovereignty and the majesty of God. And the moment you begin to wander from that, you will begin uh, without question to wander uh, from the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning, just the beginning of wisdom. Certainly not the end point. Uh, the great, uh, great reminder, again, that God uses agents, uh, terrifying agents of God, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4. Uh, speaking of the spiritual condition of people, uh, the Apostle Paul says, in whose case the God of this world has blinded their minds. Terrifying prospect that God dispatches an agent, Satan himself, who blinds minds, uh, to keep people from believing in the majesty of the hope of the gospel and salvation in Jesus Christ. Uh, 
again, terrible prospect of spiritual ruin, uh, invoked again by the authors of Scripture, the Apostle Paul, Prophet Isaiah. Now again, I want to remind you, uh, uh, in terms of uh, retributive justice, uh, people are responsible and accountable. They, they are in spiritual ruin because they worshiped idols, and God, of course, commissions the prophet to go affect spiritual ruin because of their idolatry. Uh, but even that, in terms of our own culture, uh, we, we simply, I think, are lurching more and more into the reality that there is no accountability for everything. And if there is accountability, we'll spread it across everyone, so everyone will pay equally. Again, it's almost as if we're saying we are responsible for nothing, and we are accountable to no one. But Isaiah says otherwise, the Lord is upon his throne, high and lofty, and seated at the pinnacle of glory, and the train of his glory, majesty, fills the temple, and will one day fill the earth, and gather his people unto himself, and destroy all of the enemies of the Lord Jesus Christ. To fear the Lord is simply the start of wisdom great theology of the scriptures. You know, I think uh, in terms of the spiritual condition of uh, the church today, certainly speak anecdotally, but uh, remember the great battles in church history. Uh, Luther defeated Erasmus. Except Luther's theology of the sovereignty and the majesty of God and the bondage of the human will has all been forgotten today. We are essentially Erasmus on steroids in the American church. Why have we wandered and gone so far? Think of uh, Calvin defeating. So Sinus, but Socinianism reigns supreme in the American church. The great father of the Protestant Reformation that made it a universal event. Who studies Calvin today? Or Augustine, of course, defeats Pelagius. Who cares about the soteriology of Augustine today? We, we dance with Pelagius without question in the American church. How can it be that we have wandered so long and so far? Terrible spiritual ruin. It's as if we long for the glory of man rather than the glory of God. Again, we're responsible, we're accountable. Much of our spiritual condition is simply people don't care to learn and to grow and to study history and to understand the great battles have been waged and fought, the accomplishment of the gospel and the glory of God that is supreme and that ought to be pinnacle in our lives. We, we simply wander in our own direction, dance with Erasmus, so Sinus, Pelagius. Who cares about the Synod of Dort? Again, reminder of the majesty of uh, the provision, though, of God. Uh, provision of the gospel. We ought to understand our lostness and understand the provision of God. Uh, Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 6, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Who can fix that? 
Each of us has turned to his own way. Who can interdict us? Only Christ. The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. So Isaiah says, uh, of course, uh, couching something of uh, uh, the majesty of his prayer in a, uh, in a simple, uh, single uh, word, uh, he, he calls upon God, verse 17, to return, come back. Uh, again, the intensity of the fear of the Lord ought to grip any of us that God would leave and never come back. The limit continues uh, in the prayer, verses 18 and 19. Uh, come back, revive us, save us. Uh, but they have become like the nations, absent saving grace. Uh, and again, I don't discount responsibility, accountability, you rebel, expect consequences. Uh, I'm just enamored by the depth of our culture that says that you can rebel and there are no consequences. And if there are, we'll spread it out above everybody. But of course, the scriptures know nothing of that. That each individual will stand before God and give an account. Before the glory of the one who is high and lifted up. Uh, again, I don't think this prayer of the prophet Isaiah is uh, ever totally answered. One of the reasons I know that is John chapter 12, verses 39 and 40. Uh, John cites the commission of the prophet Isaiah makes it true in the days of Christ, the implicit question, all of the miracles of the grandeur of the living Christ, why is it so few believed? John cites the commissioning of the prophet Isaiah because he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. Again, the fear of the Lord. Uh, and that quotation from Isaiah chapter 6 found in John chapter 12. Uh, ought to terrify us of the power of God to affect spiritual ruin. We don't think in those terms. Jesus did, because he is the one quoting the prophet. Uh, Romans chapter 9, verses 11, again, uh, we learn the great theology of uh, the sovereignty of God respecting the nation of Israel, that he's going to save a remnant and not a nation. And again, couched in what language? God saves those whom he wills. He has compassion on those whom he has compassion and hardens those whom he wills to harden. Uh, the majesty of God uh, that, that ought to teach us to fear the Lord is the beginning of wisdom uh, because of who he is and his unrestrained power to affect salvation or to ruin. So what hope is there? Well, there's another prayer. Thankfully. Based upon the great servant song to the prophet Isaiah, uh, Isaiah, interestingly enough, in Isaiah chapter 49, in verse 3, uh, references uh, uh, the Messiah, uh, you are my servant Israel. 
So a new Israel is going to come. He's the Messiah. And he's going to save his people, and none will be lost. Uh, and his prayer uh, to that end is found in John chapter 17. Uh, and in this prayer, sadness turns to victory and salvation. And so we turn now again uh, from uh, the sadness of the power of God to affect spiritual ruin to the joy and the delight of the power of God, the unrestrained power of God to save, found in our Lord's high priestly prayer, John chapter 17. Uh, again, trust you have your New Testaments. Uh, uh, this, this prayer, like the prayer of the prophet Isaiah, is a prayer of, of great passion. The passion of the Savior in preparation for going to the cross. Uh, three movements in the prayer. The first is a prayer for the glory of the cross, verses 1 to 5. Our Savior asks for the glory that belongs to him. John chapter 17, verse 1. These things Jesus spoke, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy Son, that the Son may glorify thee. Uh, it means that uh, God, of course, seals the answer to the prayer for the glory that belongs to the Son and the glory that belongs to the Father. If there is one thing that ought to cause us to fear the Lord is that the triune God possesses all glory from the beginning of time uh, that will never abate and never run out because of who they are. That's also a prayer that he has all authority, uh, which validates his sovereignty. Look at verse 2. Even as thou gavest to him authority over all mankind, what a great reason to fear the Lord. He has authority over all. None are outside of his dominion and rule and kingly reign. Uh, God gave him authority over all mankind, that to all whom thou givest him, he may give eternal life. Notice, notice the particularism of that prayer. That the God the Father gave to the Son uh, to dispense... Uh, eternal life to those given to him from the Father. I'm so amazed at this remarkable theological construct called universalism that's gaining momentum in the American churches. Uh, remember uh, back in the uh, early part of the 20th century, one of the uh, elite, let's say more academic churches, if you will, uh, was the universalist churches, the Unitarians. Uh, they were universalists because they believed everyone was uh, going to be a son of God and everyone was going to heaven. Uh, of course, in those days, uh, Orthodox Church rejected uh, all of that. Uh, but universalism is gaining a new foothold in the American church. There is no hell. We're all going to heaven. Well, the particularism is in this prayer I think, uh, ought to cause us to be sober and to gain a renewed appreciation for the fear of the Lord. That if you're a Christian, you owe your faith to your election and the authority that the Lord Jesus Christ had over everything about your life. And that he came in his sovereign grace and power and compassion, gave you, gave you life and faith that you might hold and to believe in him. It means that he can dispense life to those whom he wishes. And he has completed the task 
and His eternal glory will secure the success of the cross. Notice in verse 4, having accomplished the work that Thou hast given me to do. He finished the work. Finished it. How could He do otherwise? The God the Son is God totally and completely. He leaves nothing unfinished. He finished the work so grand, so majestic, it ought to instruct us in the fear of the Lord. Oh, to worship a Savior who finished the work of redemption upon the cross and then dispatches the Spirit to apply it. That's power. The power of God to save in an unrestrained way. Uh, Next, in verses 16 to 19, the second movement of the prayer, uh, he he proclaims uh, uh, his success uh, to the disciples. Notice the last phrase in verse 6. Of all that were given uh, to God the Son, uh, they they have kept thy word. It manifested his work was, uh, was uh, entirely successful uh, in particular because uh, the disciples kept the word of God. Uh, and therefore the prayer secures again them and their keeping of the word because Jesus kept them. And now he's turning them over to be kept by the Father. Uh, again, the success, they've kept thy word. Uh, marvelous, marvelous a reminder. Uh, uh, I, I, I love this prayer because it, it ought to be something of the success of our lives in Grace Bible Church. That we kept the Word of God. And that we were faithful in keeping the Word of God because our Savior kept us to keep the Word of God. And the prayer is grand not only because it secures the end, but the means of salvation to eternity, the Word of God. And oh, for any church who begins to wander from the Word, becomes more infatuated with our culture, all of the entrapments of our culture, it's a reminder that that's the path to ruin and destruction. That we might keep the Word of the Lord. Uh, Then, of course, he he commends them to the Father's uh, keeping in verse 11. Uh, that they may be one, just as the triune God are one. The Trinity, again, is invoked for the success of the prayer. Uh, And and just what is this grand means of the work of God? Uh, Verse 15, I I, I don't ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Uh, The world is a sinister place. One of the reasons you and I ought to fear the Lord is because this world is a sinister, evil place. And we're but pilgrims by the grace of God passing through. It is Satan's domain. He prays, therefore, for the purchase that the Father would keep them in their transit through the world because of his power to keep his people. A parallel passage, by the way, of this great text uh, where the verb to keep and the preposition from are also found. Uh, Revelation chapter 3 and verse 10, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, the hour which is about to come upon the whole world. Uh, it's, it's the prayer, uh, the grace of God uh, to keep us uh, 
through the testing that breaks upon the world. It's not removal from the world, but preservation through. That the Father will secure all those purchased by the Son. It's not exemption from testing, but protection from testing. There's something of a unique epidemic I, I find in the Christian church today. Uh, Christians encounter trials and they seemingly say, well, God, if that's the way my life's going to be, I'm leaving. There's no promise anywhere in Scripture that God is going to exempt you from trials, my friend. What He's going to do is protect you through them, that you will come out the other end successful because you've kept the Word of God. I mean, if our Savior was not exempted from trials, we're His sons. He's the captain of our salvation. We're not removed from testing. We're protected from it and through it to emerge that it might be said of us, we kept the perseverance of our Savior. So Christ leaves us in the world and pledges the power of God to bring us through testing, not exemption from it. Because Christ has given us to the Father, we will not give in. And to our success, our Savior pledges the faithfulness of God the Father. To that end, we cannot fail. Perseverance through, continuance within, indefatigable throughout, resolution during, and that from God which is our only success because of the power of God. If it were left to us, we would have long since left the faith and rejected the faithfulness of our Savior. Thank God it wasn't left to us. It was left to Son and Spirit to preserve us in the hour of testing. Again, this prayer, majestic prayer, the success of the people of God, based upon the one praying at the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I, I remind you of a component of the prayer in John chapter 17, verse 17. Sanctify them truth, thy word is truth. Uh, that uh, part of the success of the church is found in the truth of the word of God. We are sanctified by the word of the Savior by the words of Scripture uh, as, a, as a means uh, that's been predetermined just as our end has been predetermined. Sanctify them in truth. The prayer that you and I ought to pray for one another every day, sanctify the people of God in the truth. And the Word of God is the truth. That's central to our lives and our devotions ought to be the Word of the living God. And uh, herein we find those words from the greatest prayers, I think, of all of Scripture. The prayer of our Savior going to His passion upon the cross, securing the success, not just of the disciples, but the church at large. Uh, verses 20 to 26, the prayer leaves the disciples uh, to pray for the church. He commissions the disciples to go out and blesses their faith uh, with fruitfulness and unity to eternity. Uh, he creates the one in parallel with the unity of the Trinity and secures uh, the unity of the church with his own prayer. Again, the power of God to save. And notice verse 20. I don't 
do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me uh, through their word. Uh, church for the uh, prayer that prays for the glory of Christ, of course, a prayer that's answered. A uh, prayer that's prayed for the apostolic company, a prayer that's answered. A prayer that's prayed for uh, the end of the election and the means of the election of the church uh, at large, a prayer that's going to be answered. Cannot fail because of him who does not fail, the Lord Jesus Christ. Fear him. And your life will be in good stead. And fear him because it's simply the beginning of wisdom. The power and the greatness of the majesty of the Son of God and his power to save, his unrestrained power to save. Uh, that none who belong to him None given to him by the Father can ever be lost, secured from eternity, based upon this prayer. So the contrast of uh, uh, these two prayers is stunning. Uh, in the prayer of the prophet Isaiah, there's a summons uh, for God uh, to secure uh, success uh, in light of the total failure of the people. Again, I acknowledge that there is a certain sense in which you can say that the prayer of the prophet is answered because the people do return from the Babylonian captivity. They do rebuild the temple. Uh, but the temple is also going to be destroyed again uh, because of idolatry and sin. So we need a much greater prayer warrior than the prophet Isaiah. And that's what we get in the prayer of Jesus Christ. God acts in Christ, in Christ alone, to secure total, absolute, and irrevocable success. Thank God for the prayer of our Savior. It's totally answered. None are lost, all secured. Because of him who prays, the God-man who prays, and the Father answers the prayers of the God-man. And so this morning we ought to shudder in the majesty, the power of God. We ought to learn to fear him for his power to ruin. But if you're a Christian, his ability to save. Uh, if you're not a Christian, you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, I can only commend to you uh, the power of God to save and to rescue and to deliver. No one else can. You cannot save yourself. Government cannot save you. All will fail you. All will eventually turn to total irrevocable ruin. I think you should fear God because it's been set in motion. And the only way you can escape is to flee to the Lord Jesus Christ, to sue for peace, and to ask him to deliver you. Again, the power of God is the only one that can deliver. No one else can. No one else can deliver but the greatness of the only Savior, the Lord Jesus. It is to him who we repair for rescue and deliverance in this life and salvation. And it is to him to whom our ultimate success and sanctification by the word of the truth ultimately breaks and he will rescue us and deliver us.
and we will be his for all eternity. Fear the Lord and the awesomeness of his power and may God bless us throughout our days. Because it's only the beginning of wisdom, but nonetheless, let us fear him because of his power. And may God bless us as we draw near to him and rejoice in him and acknowledge him as the only Savior of the people of God.